welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live, where we answer your Bible questions live here in our weekly show. My name's Tina with my friends, Jane Wendy. Hi, guys. How you doing? Hello. We're great. How about you? I'm good. Thank God it's Friday, and I'm just ready for the weekend and to answer Bible questions. I'm so excited. We got a lot of really great questions this week. Yay, we do. I mean, These are deep questions. These are big ones, challenging ones. Definitely. How are you guys doing? I, good. It, Grateful I, Sabbath. It's amazing I'm here right now because I was like a puddle on the floor even a couple hours ago. So this is good. <laughs> it's oh, well, been a God, busy week, God. but... God can do anything. So I'm I'm grateful you guys are here and we're grateful that you guys, our viewers are out there watching. We want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. We just, uh, we're so blessed to have all of our viewers who are either coming back or if this is your first time, we want to welcome you and just want to thank God that you are here uh, with uh, the Bible Ask family to um, listen to these uh, answers to Bible questions. And again, this is a live show. So if you have questions or ideas or thoughts or comments that you want to share with us, uh, be sure to put them down in the comment section below. We are live, so we are happy to interact with our audience. We love hearing We're from you guys. Not just happy, we love it. <laughs> yeah, as you said, yes, we, we love it. We, we love, love it. We do love it. We had some really great people join us and with really, you know, real questions and really awesome comments and ideas too. So we just enjoy interacting with you. So again, if you have questions or thoughts you want to share with us um, or just want to say hi, say where you're from, we've got heard from people from all over the world joining us. So kind of exciting to just see the family of God um, here. So we just want to, again, put your comments or whatever you want to, or questions down in the comment section below. We are on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. And so we are happy to um, talk to you guys all tonight. So before we get started, though, we have, like I said, a lot of really great questions. We want to start with, of course, a word of prayer. So Jay or Wendy, you want to pray for us? Let's do it. Heavenly Father, thank you for getting us through this week and for bringing us to this time that we can be together with you and each other. And we pray that your spirit be with each and every one of us. Help us to discern your truth and to learn about you, your love, and some of the great mysteries that you open up to us in your word. And this, Lord, we pray in the name of your wonderful son, Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. And Wendy, do we want to get started with our first question? Let's do it. Let's get our first question up. All right. So Giselle is asking, where in the Bible verse that states Lucifer was a lead worship angel in heaven before being casted out and that had music instrument on him? That is a really great question, Giselle. I actually love that one. And we actually have a really great, very thorough answer on Bible Ask. It's actually one of our more popular questions. If Just so you know, um, Bible Ask is actually a, a Bible-based um, online ministry. So we actually have a library of Bible questions and answers. If you go to our website, BibleAsk.org, and um, a, the question, uh, if you want to see more details, it the question that if you just plug in is, was Satan ever once a glorious angel? And so you can check that out on our website, but I'm going to give you the short version tonight. Um, so where you're going to find that basically in the Bible, as far as, you know, how do we know that Satan was once a, like a worship angel and that he actually had instruments um, built into him is Ezekiel chapter 28. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 19. So that's basically, um, where you're going to find that in the Bible is Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 19. And um, yeah, so we'll look at the first verse, which says, uh, basically, Ezekiel is speaking a prophecy. 
that God is sharing with him. And in verse 12, it says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. So it appears that he's speaking um, a lamentation or something against uh, the king of Tyre. And it says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom. Um, did you, sorry. Your seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So here we see it. This can't really be the, the king of Tyre. Because the king of Tyre was, you know, 3,000 plus years after Eden. So obviously he's making a comparison of the king of Tyre to Satan. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz, diamond, barrel, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. And actually, when you look in the King James Version, it says the pipes like they were placed in you. So it's like God instilled in him a very special musical ability, almost as if um, the, uh, what was I going to say, as if um, music or an instrument, like a pipe, like an organ or something was put into his body, into his his creation um, or the, the way God created him. He was very special. And in verse 14, it goes on to say, you were the anointed cherub who covers, I established you. Now, this is interesting, talking about Satan being the anointed cherub who covers. Now, when you look in the Old Testament, in the book of um, Exodus, when Moses was called to build the sanctuary, there was a very special piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And on that Ark, there's um, basically the Ark of the Covenant is... Uh, like a box with the covering and inside was the 10 commandments written by God's finger. And on top was like a throne, like a seat it's called a mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat, there was two angels that come and they were to hide or shield um, the people who would come to see it or the, the high priest from the Shekinah glory or the glory of God. And so these were the two highest angels. And it says that he was the, the, um, that Satan was one of the, covering cherubs or um, covering angels. So basically there was only two angels that were this close to God that um, worked this closely. And if we understand that this was in the sanctuary, we know that there's a sanctuary in heaven. We see that in Hebrews chapter eight, verses one and two, that there's a sanctuary in heaven that the Lord built. And so, yes, this, Satan was definitely part of the worship service because he was in the most holy place doing a most special work. Only there was only one other angel as close to God as he was. And if I was going to take a guess, I, I can't say this for certain, but if I was going to take a guess, who would that other angel have been? I would guess it would be Gabriel. And so um, here you see um, that Satan was what, anointed cherub who covers. And God says, going on in um, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. And we know that God's holy mountain is where God is worshipped. It says, you walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And then it says, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you profaning out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, for, from the midst of the fiery stones. So here we definitely see that Satan was an angel that was um, had a very high position in the worship service. He was the closest to God that an angel could be. He was made special and perfect. And um, again, with a special ability for music, because um, it says that his pipes and timbrels were, were built in him. Back up um, 
in verse 12 and so or and in verse 13 so again you do see that here um in ezekiel 28 that that is definitely the role that satan had that he definitely had a special ability for worship and for music and again you know when we think of satan and his, him originally being lucifer um you know that uh, he definitely you know has a great ability and sadly he decided to use it for himself and satan wanted worship for himself and you see that um if you go to the book of Isaiah chapter 14, and I'll just show you these verses really quick, just to um, bring home this point of, you know, that Satan definitely wanted, he is, um, I want to say he was made for worship. The only thing is that he wanted worship for himself. That's what changed is that initially he was made to worship God. Um, but because he was full of pride and he was full of his own beauty, he wanted the worship for himself. And you see that very clearly in the book of Isaiah um, in chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. And again, we'll look at that really quick um, just to uh, make this all come together. Um, and again, in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground. So again, Satan's name before he was Satan, which means enemy, was Lucifer, which means son of the morning. Um, it says, You are weak, you weak, who weaken the nations. And you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, which would be above the angels. He wanted to be more than an angel, more than what he was created to be. And so the angels, um, I'll show that to you later. <laughs> Revelation chapter one basically says stars are a symbol of an angel. And so um, again, he says, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. So again, like the mountain of God, he wanted to be worshiped. He wanted to sit up where God sits. And in verse 14, he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And so Satan was obsessed with worship because, again, that's what he was built for. Um, but he wanted to not give worship. He wanted to take worship. And he, in being filled with pride and selfishness, he became who he he is today, which is Satan, which means enemy, which, um, you know, in John chapter 10, verse 10, it says that the thief which is the devil, you know, comes but to steal and to kill and to destroy, and which is in the complete opposite of the character of God. And Jesus finishes that verse by saying, but I, which of course is Jesus, says, I have come that I might um, give them life and give life more abundantly. So Satan and his object of worship is for self and selfishness, and Jesus and his worship is for giving and for um, life and being a blessing. And so that's how you see the, the difference between Christ's nature and the, the nature of Satan. And um, so I love this question because absolutely, yes, we do see that there is, um, you know, a, a difference between um, Satan and his, you know, method of worship, because the thing is um, that we have to be careful. This is just a side note. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> to plug one more last thing, a side note, you know, we have to be careful um, of our worship we give uh, because not all worship is true worship. And God calls his people to worship him in spirit, you know, having the Holy Spirit, but also in truth. So in accordance to the Bible, in accordance to the word that Jesus has said, because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. And no man comes to the father, but through me. So we definitely need to be sure that we're worshiping God the way that God calls 
us to worship him and not the way we want to or the way Satan would have us, which is after selfishness. And we definitely see, you know, this is an object lesson in the book of Daniel chapter three. When there were, you know, the king sets up a statue and says everybody has to bow down and worship. But there are three Hebrew boys, um, their, their Babylonian names being Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they say, no, we're not going to worship. We refuse to. And, you know, God honors them, you know, saving them from the fiery furnace. And in the same way, God is calling us to give him true worship, no matter what the cost. Because in the end of time, you know, when we look at Revelation chapter 13, there is going to be a time when there is you know, worship, or, you know, it's going to become a matter of worship. Are we going to worship the beast? Or are we going to worship Jesus, the true God? And so um, I just pray that we would, you know, not follow the example of Satan, which is to try to do worship in the way we want, in the way we think is best, or just like Cain, you know, the first false worshiper <laughs> who slew his brother because God didn't accept his false worship, but that we would be true worshipers of God and worship him in spirit and in truth. And just one last thing. Um, and I know we, I looked at Ezekiel chapter 28, um, which is the answer to your question. People will say, well, this is the king of Tyre. It's talking, talking about Satan, but it's a, it's a symbol of, of what the king of Tyre was being, the, the king of Tyre was being like Satan. And if you look at Mark chapter eight, verse 33, there's a time where Jesus calls Peter Satan. He says, you know, Peter says something and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And so oftentimes, you know, obviously Satan didn't turn or Peter didn't turn into Satan in that time. It was just that Peter um, spoke words that were from Satan because they were against the will of God. And so in like manner, um, it's the king of Tyre is being likened unto Satan in this instance. And so just to make that clear, because I know a lot, there's a big thing out there where like, oh, no, this is not about Satan. It's about the king of Tyre. No, this is definitely about Satan. So. Just want to put that out there. Um, okay, I think that answers the question. Is there um, anything, Jay, or when do you want to add, or are we going to move on to the next question? Yeah, I think that was really thorough and, and well explained. Praise right, God. Let's, let's get our next question up. So Don is asking, I love the church I go to, but why don't I feel a part of it? Hey, Don, this is a really, 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 really good question because I think it affects so many Christians and, and former Christians, people who were in the church and then sadly ended up leaving because they never felt a part of it. I think this is at the core of probably the, the greatest crisis for the Christian church in general. And let's talk about that. Why, why are people leaving? Why don't they feel part of the church? And this isn't something that's just your church. It's really a pandemic across all of Christianity, and it's even prophesied in the Bible itself. We see this in Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14, and it says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things say the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. I know your works and that you are neither hot, sorry, neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your, na your nakedness 
may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with the eyes have that you may see. Um, a little bit of background. There's seven churches and all spoken about in Revelation between chapters two and three. You know, seven is the number of complete, completeness. So this is God's last church, the final church. Um, and it's not so much a physical church. We're talking about in terms of time period. So this is Christianity before Jesus is come, Jesus comes. And I believe this is us. This is our, our faith in this time right now. And we are lukewarm in general. We're not totally on fire for Jesus. We're also not cold. We just go to church. We just do a thing. We have a form of godliness, but we deny the power thereof. And, um, and it's almost the worst form of Christianity because we're just religious enough that people think we're godly, that we're good, and that they're going to get something out of church. But then when they show up, we're completely completely lacking what should really be there. And what is that? What is God's vision for the church? What we should, should we really be like? Remember that in verse 18, we just read God said, um, you know, buy me gold refined in the fire. What's this gold? What is he wanting us to have purified in our church? Why, you know, what does it mean to really be on fire for Jesus, right? We come to Ephesians 3, starting at verse 14. And this is what Paul writes. He says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might throughout, sorry, through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, just see here again and again, emphasis on, on heart and love, and, and again, love again. Uh, this is what we really should be all about. You know, Christ in us. Christ is, uh, you know, God is love and we should be in his image and we should be just talking about love till we're almost sick of it. And that's what we try to do here in Bible Ask because we realize love is really the answer to almost everything. Uh, it, it explains everything. Everything points there and ends there. And, and unfortunately, so many of our churches are devoid of it. And what makes love difficult is because it's not just head knowledge. It's something that actually has to be practiced and expressed and, and, and carried out. It's a way of living. And it, it can be difficult because it's so contrary to the way of the world. You know, so many of us are struggling. We're hurting. We're short on cash. We're short on time. We're short on emotional support. And to show up and, and to give can be really difficult. And, and everybody's just caught in their own world. And unfortunately, some people also show up to church thinking it's a place where they could get positions and power and, and authority. And, and so you just end up with this mixture that doesn't end up with us coming together, fellowshipping, supporting one another, loving one another, and practicing what it would be like to be in heaven. So what can you do about it, though, to, to feel more part of it? Um, I mean, it starts with shifting your mind and not waiting for the church to make you feel a part of it, but rather you realizing you can make yourself a part of the church. Uh, and you could do this by being active, be involved, find ways that, you know, uh, whatever it takes, host a Bible study at your house if you're in a position to be able to do that. 
start a homeless ministry if you call to feel called to it host uh you know the a food food ministry you know provided we call it potlucks i don't know what your church will call it you know where everybody brings food and then you eat together after church you can facilitate it and and usually pastors and people working the church are just yearning for people to step up step up and and take action and, and help out and if you don't see something take the initiative and and you're going to now feel like you have you have purpose you're having influence in a positive way that god wanted you to have and this is really i think also that the core of the problem with church today is most people think church is you show up you warm up the pew you get preached to and then you go home you've done your duty and that's not true first peter 2 9 it says but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation his own special people that you all of you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light it's not one or two people in the church are the pastors and the speakers and the priests it's all of us we together are the priests we are all supposed to carry carry out different roles in ministry in different ways according to the talents and abilities and calling that god has given us and this is this is at the core of what it means to be in the body of christ and this is when it gets exciting to be in the body of christ and when we feel like we're a, a part of it uh romans 12 starting at verse 4 it says for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry, let us use it in our, minist in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I mean, there's just so many little ways and big ways that we can contribute to our church. And when we do this and we just start looking for opportunities to change our church, now we feel part of it. And we're not waiting for the church or somebody else to take action to it. We're taking ownership and, and we'll, we'll be letting God shine through us and and that's when i think really church gets exciting so i hope this is really helpful to you don thank you so much for asking and and i pray for anybody else who you don't feel like a part of your church try these things and, and i'd love to hear your feedback and and if you also are a part of your church and and feel a part of it like what what has helped you feel a part of it you know we'd love to see your your comments also in the chat Tina, any thoughts anything you'd like to add And uh, maybe we need a yeah. couple more times. We, we've been debugging. I think you probably noticed there's a little tech issue there with that. Uh... We can, if you want to go ahead and bring the next question up for Jay, and we can continue on while Tina's getting ready. And also, if you got, now's a great time. If you have any questions, uh, those of you who are chiming in, and, and please let us know if you're here. Who, who's joining us live right now? Please say hi. Um, tell us where you're from. We'll love to know who's joining us today. And again, we, we've had some really amazing live questions, some really great people who have just jumped on and really given us a great conversation. Absolutely. And do we have our next question? Still middle debugging. Our producer <laughs> might still be debugging. 
Here we go. Let's see. Not really. Okay. <laughs> and thank you, Olivia, for joining us today. Hope you're doing well. You're a very faithful person, always with us every week, it seems like. And um, maybe we could talk a little bit more about church. Like, what's been your experience? You've had, I think, you've had some really interesting experiences about, you know, trying to find the right church and eventually found one that, that really made you, maybe even to this day, feel really a part of it. What, what was yeah, that for you? Yeah, I think for me, what made me feel like a part of church was the community and the connection with other people. And it was really when other members in the church reached out to me and sort of gave me a place there. You know, they saw value in me for their community and really kind of brought me into that. And that I'm somebody who I like to give with my actions. Acts of service are definitely a, a way that I show love. And so for me, having a place to serve really helped me find that that sense and and then having that service be appreciated that was you know that was key for me to feel like i fit in the church and and i think that's a part of it too is understanding what our own love languages are and then where and then the church community where our what's not our natural love language you know acting operating that way is then well received by them. So for some people, that's giving gifts. For some people, that's acts of service. You know, but but I um, hope if you didn't get that, you still would have stayed with the church, right? Well, God, for me, like God really called me into the church, and that was another big thing for me was that um, I think the, the church that I felt most at home at was one that God really clearly called me to. I had been I had been praying about where to go to church. And um, God actually told me specifically a church in a specific city. And I had no connection with that city. I didn't really know much about it. It wasn't real close to where I was. And then, and so there was this one moment that I, that, that God really clearly spoke that to me to go to that church. And then a couple months later, I was at an event and I was talking to someone about what I was looking for in a church. And the interesting thing was that the person that I was the gal was speaking to, she's like, I know just the church for you. And she said the the exact same church. And so that was really weird. <laughs> so it just really felt very providential. And then when I did go, once I worked up the courage to actually go there, because it really was out of my way. Um, then very soon after that, I, I, I was very warmly, like someone actually called me over and was like, you're an answer to our prayer. And I was like, what do you, I don't even know who you are. What are you talking about? It was really weird. But um, they, it, it was true. Like God made, God orchestrated all of this and they prayed the same time I first felt called there. So I really do believe. Divine. And you're really active again. Like you were yeah. really involved and that made a big difference. And I think that's what kept me in, in my church was just being able to be active and involved. And mm-hmm. to this day, I, I feel very useful there. Uh, so it's, all right, I think we're ready to go back to uh, to the show. We fit, um, Tina, are you back? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Excellent. Yes, yes we great. can. Yay. Yay. Technical <laughs> problems are so fun, aren't they? Um, all the time, but it's okay. The devil was mad because we were talking not nice about him. So. 
that's how it goes. Of course. Said, our God is bigger, so it's fine. Amen. All right. Shall we get our next question up? So Emmanuel is asking, why do almost all evangelical churches here in the Philippines teach tithing? That is a really great question. And I cannot speak for the evangelical church because like we've said before, Bible Ask isn't affiliated with any specific church or denomination. However, um, if the churches in the Philippines are, or the evangelical churches or any church is um, promoting the concept of tithing, it is a very biblical concept. And so I just want to show this to you really quick. Um, if you look in the book of Malachi chapter three, and you go down to verses eight through, I think, 12. I think that's probably the best place to stop. So let's look at the book of Malachi chapter three, verses eight through 12. I think this will give you a pretty good answer. And so here, um, uh, God is speaking through the prophet Malachi. And basically, um, this is during a time when Israel was in a state of rebellion. They weren't obeying God's commandments and um, they were having judgments. <laughs> and so the people were like, why, why God are you allowing these judgments to befall us? Aren't we your people? And God was speaking to them through Malachi in, in chapter three, verse eight, he says, will a man rob God? And God says, yet you have robbed me. And, so, and God says, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? It, but God says in tithes and in offerings. So basically God is saying, I am commanding you. It is required of you by God to pay your tithes and your offerings. And so it is a very important biblical concept of tithing, which is basically giving one tenth of whatever your increase is. And so, um, you know, basically because of this, um, the next few verses, basically God is saying, that's why you have a curse in your land. That's why there are problems. And in verse 10, God gives us a really great promise about tithes. And in verse 10, it says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, which means like, you know, to, to the church of God, to God's, you know, where God's message is going out to the storehouse, that there may be food in my house that, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open to for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And so God is promising here that if you are faithful in your giving of tithe, God will be faithful in giving you a blessing more than you can even handle. Um, and then he continues to go on in verses 11 and 12, basically that, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall your vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And in verse 12, says something very important and key. It says, and all nations will call you blessed for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So God gives a promise that he will indeed bless those who are faithful in giving their tithes as well as their offerings to God. And it is a very important um, practice. It's something that's been going, that's been done since the time we see in um, Abraham. He, when he was, um, I think this is Genesis chapter 14, if I'm not mistaken. So I, I again, I apologize. I don't have my notes in front of me. They kind of dissolved. When our, we had some technical issues, but in, I believe Genesis chapter 12, um, Abraham, we see after he wins a battle, there's a, a king and a priest named Melchizedek. And in verse 18 of Genesis 14, it says, Then King Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God, a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, professor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, being Abraham, 
gave him a tithe of all. So basically of all the, the spoils that um, Abraham had from this battle, he gave a tenth to Melchizedek, which was the priest of God. So basically, um, and Melchizedek is a very special priest um, because he was a king and a priest, which in my opinion, he's a symbol of Jesus in that way. And you see that definitely spoken of in the book of Hebrews chapter seven, but I won't go to that. But basically, you know, it was, um, it's an act of worship to give God a tenth of all that he has given you. And it is very biblical. And so, you know, if a church is, you know, saying you need to pay tithes and offerings, they're definitely saying something that's biblical. Now, if you feel that your church is just wanting money out of you and just, you know, pushing, you know, giving and that sort of a thing, or trying to preach a prosperity gospel where they're saying, oh, unless you give, God's not going to give you. Um, you know, I would be weary of these churches because there are definitely, you know, sadly, some, you know, churches or people in churches who are trying to um, financially grow, you know, their own <laughs> bank accounts and not really have a concern for the people. Um, so um, we definitely want to, you know, be faithful to God in giving him our tithe, but, um, you know, be prayerful about it and, you know, which church you give it to and, um, you know, where you feel that money should go as far as, you know, promoting God's service and giving it so that, um, God's serve or God's work will go forward. And because, because God says, I want bread to be in my house. Basically bread is a symbol of the word of God. So basically where put your money, where the word of God is going to be going out and, spread and um, doing the work that God's called it to do. Um, so yeah, Jay or Wendy, any other thoughts on that one? No, that was, that was my, my thoughts exactly too. Yeah, definitely. And I, it, when I just said that right now, like saying, you know, the words that God would have us to do, it reminds you of a verse in Isaiah. Um, do you know the verse? Uh, it's, I think it's Isaiah 55, 11. If I'm not mistaken, where it says, um, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but will go and accomplish the thing whereto I sent it. Yes, and that's um, Isaiah 55, 11. So yes, God, you know, put the money, <laughs> your tithe and your offerings where God's service is going to go out and that his word is going to be preached and it will accomplish what God has intended for it. And it's actually yeah. a really good segue for the next question. Uh -huh, let's get that question up, huh? All right, let's do it. All right. So Lisa is asking, if by believing in God and accepting him, we are promised to go to heaven, what is the importance of judgment day? Will it make a difference in how we will live in heaven and what our rewards will be? And Lisa, this is a, a really good question, a really deep one. And it, it really can get confused about judgment day. What is judgment day? What's the purpose of it? Um, when is judgment? When is it happening? All these things. And I think it's important to understand that judgment is a process that's carried out in multiple phases. Take, for example, a criminal trial today. First, you have indictment. Then there's the trial. Then after they're convicted, then you have sentencing. And then after that, the sentence is carried out or executed. So there's this whole multi-step process that we call due process. This is what you do for fairness to make sure that you don't quickly convict and and uh, give capital punishment to an innocent person, for example. And we do it so that, you know, even if the judge knew what's the right result, you still go through the process so that all of society, all the observers can uh, 
can watch it and see, oh, yes, yes, this is the correct result, and we are fine with what gets carried out. So it's the same thing with God. So God has his process. Now, it's a little confusing because God's process is a little bit different when it comes to his, for the people who are righteous versus the people who are wicked. And uh, we'll start with the righteous because that's how God actually starts. First Peter 4, 17, Peter writes, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So judgment starts with God's people. What does that mean? How does that work? It's really interesting. If you look at Ezekiel 9, 4, uh, we have this story of, of God talking about how he's going to bring judgment to Jerusalem. And he says, you know, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations, abominations that are being done within it. So he says, I want you to mark my people, my people who are sad at what they're seeing going on at all the wickedness around them. Mark those people. And then God proceeds to then have an angel go through and destroy the wicked people. So first God's people are marked, then the wicked get destroyed. And we tend to say, wait, what? Isn't it the wicked that get marked? Aren't they the ones that get the mark of the beast? But Again, no, God's people also get marked. Revelation 9, starting at verse 3, for example, it says, Then out of the smoke locusts came out of the earth, and to them was given power, and as the scorpions of the earth have power, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any living thing in any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And I believe this is referring to a period of time that's ready in the past. So God's people are always being marked. God knows, Jesus says, I know who are my sheep. Uh, and how does this work? God actually has a running tab, a running list of those who, you know, if at any moment they were, they were to die or Jesus were to come that day, he would know who he would take home with them. Uh, we see in Revelation 21, 27, it says, but there shall by no means enter in it, the, the holy city, Jerusalem, anything that defiles, or causes an, an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there's this book called the Book of Life that's always been maintained. And anybody who's in that book will, you know, be quote unquote saved and be the one that Christ will take with him to heaven at uh, his second coming. Psalm 69, 28 refers to this. Well, I mean, Moses actually refers to this. We said, you know, God, blot me out uh, of your book. If, you know, it, it means you could save your people. And we come to Psalms and, and David writes, let him be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. And then Revelation 3, 5, it talks about, he who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. So in fact, you actually start in the book of life. All of us do. And it's when we turn our back on God, we rebel, we you know do not repent that we're... God sadly takes us out of that list, and we're not there. So... Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's very simple then, very straightforward. Are you in the book of life or not? And that's not the only book, by the way, and we'll come to it. God, in fact, has a record record of each and every one of our lives. 
And I think before that used to be a very difficult thing to comprehend. How could there be record of everything we do? But now like with Facebook and online and people are just constantly, constantly chronicling their own lives, it's not hard to imagine that God through whatever technology he uses, if even technology, like he's just keeping tabs on the, the good, the bad, all that we do and, and can just pull it up at any moment if he needed. And remember, it's not so that God can testify against us. As Tina was talking about, you know, we have Satan, who's the enemy, who is the accuser. He's the one that doesn't want you to go to heaven. He's the one who's making the accusations against you and arguing that you deserve to die. And God is our advocate. God is the one who wants us to be in the book of life. He's the one that wants us to go to heaven. Uh, but at the same time, he's not going to force us to go to heaven if being in heaven would be hell to us. So the book of life are the people that would, you know, be fit for the heaven, would enjoy being in heaven, would, you know, not contribute to the pain and suffering that so many people like, like we're experiencing today because of Satan and, and, and just wickedness in general. So um, let's talk about the rewards, though, that God's people do. So we talk about rewards, judgment. So um, right before Jesus comes, the fate of everybody is sealed. We see this in Revelation 22, verses 11 to 12. Um, it reads, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my re reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So this idea that Jesus will come, take some people, Give a thousand years for people to repent, get their act together, and then we'll come back. Like that's not biblical. Like before Jesus comes, everybody's fate is sealed. If you're holy, you're holy. You know, if you're righteous, you're righteous. If you are, um, you know, wicked, you're gonna stay wicked. Jesus isn't going to give any more time after that. Like, and he won't need to, um, as we'll get to. Uh, and as you as you probably saw, he says, "My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work." So the righteous are going to get a reward. And we see Jesus talking about this, for example, in Luke 6, 35, it says, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. So God uh, will reward you whatever sacrifices you make today. God is making note of it. God is keeping tabs and there's some way he will reward us. We don't know how, and it's not necessarily, oh, you, you, you know, you gave somebody $200 today and in heaven, I'll give you $200 then. What's $200 then, right? It's meaningless. The U.S. government won't exist. Uh, the streets are paved with gold. So it's going to be, I think, different. The reward might be uh, some sort of status, maybe. Maybe you'll be given a higher position maybe entrusted with more things. Who knows, right? Uh, you can infer what it's going to be like, but we're not giving the exact details. And for sure, the greatest reward is eternal life with God. Um, that's the thing we can all look forward to. But yeah, God's keeping tabs. He sees all the good things we do. It's not the good things that get us into heaven. That's not why we should be doing it. But he's keeping tabs and we will be rewarded. So don't feel like, oh, I made a sacrifice. I'm never going to get that back. Uh, but also don't do it just because you want to store up good things in heaven. The things to store up in heaven really are the people you want to see there. 
though Christ, um, you know, when he returns, this will mark the beginning of what many people call the millennium. And during this time, the wicked will be judged. Uh, and we'll get to that. What does it mean they'll be judged? In a sense, God will give the righteous a chance to go through God's records and see why the wicked were not saved and how they will be rewarded for their wicked deeds. So this is period. So right now, the angels are ready in heaven. They already know why someone's in, why someone's not. They they know what's going on, but we don't. You know why? You might get there, get to heaven, realize, wait, why isn't this person here? And why is it that? Why is that person like this? Doesn't make sense. And God said, "I'm totally transparent. I'm going to let you go through my books. I'm let, I'm going to let you see what's in there." And we we see this spoken about, for example, in Revelation 20, starting at verse 4. I'm going to read from the NASB uh, 20 version. Uh, it says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the words of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on the foreheads and on their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's millennium. But the rest of the dead did not live until the thousand years were finished. This is the first, first resurrection. So righteous are raised. They get to judge the wicked for the thousand years. Everything's uh, up front and visible. Uh, then we come to 1 Corinthians 6.3. Uh, it says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to life? So Paul's saying, hey, guys, you're going to judge even angels. We're, so even before the wicked angels are destroyed, Satan and his crew, we also get to see what did they do and what is the punishment God has in store for them. Uh, John 5, 28, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have not who have done evil to the resurrection of condem condemnation. There's two resurrections Jesus is telling us. Uh, and so there's this lo a lot of confusion. What is the day of the Lord? What is the day of judgment? Are they referring to the second coming? Is it another day? Um, is it both? Um, when people be judged? The answer is sort of yes and yes. And I believe it's referring actually to the whole millennium and maybe perhaps, uh, you know, some of the time shortly after it. How do I get that? Second Peter 3, 8, it says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So it says it could be figuratively speaking of this thousand year period is the day of the Lord. And if you want to be literal, you know, what's the day? We keep, we keep time by the sun and the earth's orbit over it and all that. But guess what? Matthew 24, 29, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, um, you know, talk about the time of Christ coming. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And, and it could just show again, verse after verse after verse, where the sun is going to be darkened. And I, and I don't think it means just temporarily. Like the sun will be dark. Like God's going to reduce earth to pretty much the state it was at the time of creation. And so there's not going to be night and day anymore. In a sense, the, the earth is going to be frozen in time while the wicked are being judged for this millennium period. Uh, how time is actually going to be kept? I don't know. I mean, are we talking about heaven hours? Are we talking about day hours? Uh, who knows? 
Revelation 20, uh, verse 7 to 9, it says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle, whose name is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and, and the beloved city. And the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So how is Satan sort of released? You know, how is it? Um, we see it further down, but basically this is the second resurrection. For a while is just Satan and his angels on earth. All the wicked are dead. Christ raises them. Satan leads them into the final act of rebellion against the holy city. Against, you know, they surround it. They surround it, looking to attack it, proving that the wicked truly are wicked, that they're not turning from the ways. And this is ultimately where sin leads and why they're not entitled to a second chance. You know, if, if, there, if, if it would have made a difference, God would have given it to them. Revelation 20, now starting at verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, who, from whom, whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there were found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So remember, I mentioned there's a book for all of us recording what we do. Um, and, and this is talking about that. And this is now what they are judged by, the wicked. This could be referring to that time during the millennium, but I, um, if you, we proceeded to read on the next verses in Revelation, we also see the w wicked are judged by these books, and then they receive judgment, final judgment. Um, the judgment being carried out, which is their destruction in the lake of fire, which, which Revelation says is the second death. Luke 12, 47, it says, And the, the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who does not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. Um, so he did not. So if you didn't know what you were doing, but you did wrong, you're going to be beaten with few stripes. If you knew what you needed to do and didn't do it, you're going to be beat with many stripes. Um, and the verse goes on for everyone to whom much is given from whom from him much will be required and to whom much will be committed of him they will ask the more so not everybody is going to get the same degree of punishment um i don't think necessarily god wants to you know make everybody suffer and 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 do all that but he's trying to bring back balance He's really trying to restore what happened. If you really study the Bible, you know, you have this idea of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, what went on on the cross, actually, if we understand, what did Christ do? Remember, Christ carried our sins, carried our burdens. Isaiah 53, 3 to 5, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our, our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, he, we are healed. I believe, for example, Christ suffered this second death. Christ experienced what this time of wrath and punishment is like right before the wicked are, destruct, are, are destroyed. He experienced that so we wouldn't have to. He took that on. He experienced the shame, the guilt, the, the suffering, however that will be experienced by the wicked. 
and and he, he took that on himself. He also, and as part of this, you feel the experience of being cut off from God. Um, you know, Matthew 27, 46, when Jesus, Jesus shouted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You just feel like this utter hopelessness, like, you, you know, you know, you're never going to come back. You know, the God of love has turned his back on you forever. I, I, there's, there's a lot that's going on during this time. This is, this is the final judgment. Can I just pop in mm -hmm. a second and ask you something? When you were reading the one about the servant being beaten and the one who knew less being beaten less and the one knew, mm -hmm. knowing more, beaten more. Are you saying that are you, are you saying that that God would beat people who don't know or like cause more harm or what? I that, okay, so help us understand this so no one gets the wrong interpretation. Think of the really bad guy who you know really was behind World War II and and killed millions of people. He's going to suffer a whole lot more than someone who just was you know an average person but you know rejected God. That person might not. <laughs> Might not suffer at all, really. Um, and and then you take someone who, um, let's say, claims to be a Christian, is maybe the head of their church, and then has done terrible things to the church members, you know, horrible criminal things, ruined their lives, and all the while claiming to be a man of God. That person is going to suffer a whole lot more than, let's say, the average church member who then, because of being abused and, and take advantage of this church leader, just walks away from God. Um, but to clarify a little bit, is this like God causing this pain, or is this, or this, 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 is this like a punitive thing that God's inflicting on people, or is this the, I, or is that pain and suffering the simply the result of kind of them realizing the harm that they have done and having I, to deal with that? I, I think there's plenty of room for debate. I don't think it's punitive. I think what it is, it's restitutionary in a sense. Um, you know. Again, it's trying to bring back balance. You know, if you took something from somebody, then you need to give it back. Or because you caused them to experience this, I'm going to have you experience that. And so, uh, so this is sort of what I think is going to go on. So they really fully appreciate the wickedness of what they did. And those who were wrong could feel like, okay, yes, um, God's going to make everything right because, you know, the the murderer will experience being murdered. The rapist will experience being raped. Like they, you know, the God will bring this equilibrium. And I don't know if it's exactly that way, but I think this is sort of what it it is. Um, and this is why it it's so interesting to forgive somebody because I think you know remember what Jesus said when he was dying, Lord forgive them for they know not what they do. And then Stephen when he's being stoned, same thing says, Lord forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. I think when we forgive somebody then we are freeing them from the consequences of what they did during this time of judgment. And it may be that during the time of judgment, when we're going through the books and records, that we will have an opportunity to say, God, I forgive them. I don't want them to suffer for what they did to me. And again, it's not punishment. This is not about penal system, but it is about bringing this uh, general uh, balance back to the force in a sense. Um, I have to say, I'm still trying to wrap my head around these things too. Um, but let's. Um, ultimately, though, the wicked are destroyed. This concept that they're burning and suffering forever and ever and ever makes no sense. The wages of sin is death. Revelation 20, verse 15, it says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Um, and Revelation 20, 14 says, The death 
then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So God destroyed, well, death and Hades. I mean, Hades sort of representing the grave, just another way of saying death. These are destroyed also. There's not going to be any more death after this. And then Malachi 4.3, God says, You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. So they're going to be ashes. They're burned to completely gone. And in a sense, ashes under your feet, figuratively. Obadiah 1.15 really sums up the whole fate of the wicked. And Jesus writes, or God writes, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathens, as thou hast done. Oh, I have the King James Version. It shall be done unto thee, thy reward shall return upon thy own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yes, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. So, the, I mean, you guys are just going to so thoroughly destroy them as like they had never been, just completely erased. Um, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of God shall possess their possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and, and shall, be, shall not be any remaining in the house of Esau. And here it's saying Esau, but I think it's referring even to all the wicked. Um, and this, notice how it says, Jacob and Joseph shall be the flame, they shall be the fire. It's interesting, if you look at Isaiah 33, Sorry, verse 14, it says, The sinners of Zion are, are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell among the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell among the everlasting burnings? So, oh, it's saying there is an everlasting fire, for sure. But who dwells in it? That's the question it's asking, verse 14. Next, verse 15, it says, He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refuses bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. If you really study the Bible, it's fascinating. It's the glory of God that is actually the everlasting flame. As, as Moses said, our God is a consuming fire. And it's only the righteous that can really survive being in that environment, that this purifying ever purifying presence and glory of god and and it could just be the destruction of the wicked is just god just letting loose his glory right now he keeps it contained so that we might uh, have a chance to live and turn and, and prepare ourselves to dwell in his presence and those who refuse to will will suffer the consequences of that when god's god's glory is unleashed on the earth so that was, a, that was a really long response, and I think it might have been a little bit hard to follow at times. So can you get like a 30-second summary of the difference between or the, of the answer here of so, the importance of Judgment Day? So the question was, yeah, so what, it, what is the importance of Judgment Day? Will it make a difference in how we live in heaven and what our rewards will be? Um, what we normally think of Judgment Day is kind of the reward day for the righteous. Jesus shows up, this sort of is the beginning of Judgment Day, the beginning of the millennium. They're going to receive the reward with Christ, just even being with him, having eternal life. But 
getting whatever status, surprises, whatever thing God has. Um, but then the rest of that time, the millennium is revealing the lives of the, the wicked. And then it, this period will end with judgment being carried out, uh, being executed against the wicked, which is um, certainly their ultimate destruction and then whatever additional stripes they may receive, however, however that is carried out by God. Thank you for mm-hmm. that summary. Thanks for asking. And then, uh, Tina, unless you have any comments, we have a question from our, our friend Sean in. Um, no, I mean, I, I like that question. I think that's important. Um, and when I think of, you know, the judgment, because there's, uh, it kind of reminds me of that proverb. I don't know if you went over it. I, if it's having some more technical issues, but just, you know, the, um, the proverb where, you know, there's a man that starts his day at, you know, 9am starts his workday at, you know, noon, three o'clock and like an hour before the workday is over and they all get the same reward. And they're kind of like, Hey, that's not fair. And God's like, Hey, you're not God. <laughs> like I know it's fair. And, um, yes, we all get the, I, you know, we all get the same reward of eternal life. Um, if we believe in Jesus and we accept him, but I do think that there's um, a difference between, you know, um, how many, how great our crown is. I, I believe that um, for every soul we say um, that we get a, a, a jewel in our crown. I think that's a very, um, I think I have to look up the. Oh <laughs> yeah. Paul, t- Paul talks about you are, you're the stars in my crown. So exactly. Yeah. We could be rewarded with, yeah, you're right. Like starting a crown for every soul you save. Exactly. That's so a good example of one. Yeah. Point to Jesus. And so I think that they're, you know, I, I do think that there is a difference between, you know, yes, we all get eternal life. That is true. But I do believe that there is a difference in how we live our lives and what we've gone through for Christ and that we that they get a special there are special blessings. And like Jesus does talk about that in Revelation two and three, where he talks to the seven churches. He says, you know, to him that overcomes, will I give to him, you know, a crown to him. I'll give him right to the tree of life to him that overcomes in this situation you know, I'll have him sit on my throne. Um, and there's, you know, another verse talking about, um, I'm trying to remember where in Revelation, he talks about those who were beheaded for the cause of Christ and for the, the 144,000, they should be pillars in the house of my God. So there's different rewards for people who serve God in different ways. So I do believe that there is a difference between, you know, you know, the d- details of eternal life and what we have access to and what we're, we will be blessed with in heaven um, based on our service and stuff for, for God. But um, I just want to get there. <laughs> I just want to get to heaven, uh, you know, and have eternal life. So anyways, yes, I apologize. There is a, a question or comment that was given. Yeah, friend Sean M. He has a question. So Sean is asking... In your opinion, what is the best way to spread the gospel to American young adults? I'm visiting Southern California in next February and want to spread the gospel to my high school friends. Sean, that is a great question. And I love that because it's exactly what we're talking about. We definitely want to share the gospel. We definitely want to share, um, you know, Jesus with those around us. And I think, you know, we, we need to look at what um, what Jesus did and I would say Jesus method is, you know, he first, he wanted to just meet people and, and meet their needs. He healed, he went to people, he healed them, you know, he fed them. He he saw what needs that they had first and foremost, and he met those needs and he showed the people he cared for them. And as he built a relationship with people, then, you know, he's, um, 
the people were able to trust him and believe the things that he said. And then he began to be, uh, point them to spiritual things. And so, you know, I would say, you know, meet your friends where they're at, just show them you care. Um, you know, I don't know what their, their needs could be. It could be a physical need or just a, an ear to listen to, or just, you know, just showing them that you really care about them in some way. And, um, and, you know, then as you know, prayer for opportunities to open that you can, you know, share spiritual things. And, um, and honestly, I think one of the biggest things is just sharing your testimony. If the opportunity comes up, you'd be like, you know, in this one time, you know, God did this for me, like this happened and it was amazing. And I think that your testimony will mean more to them than, you know, just trying to shove a Bible story or Bible study down somebody's mm -hmm. throat. So um, I would definitely show them care first and foremost, show them love and um, then share your testimony. And um, again, if, and if they have questions, then be ready um, as, you know, the Bible says, be ready to give a man an answer, you know, um, so, you know, be ready, you know, by praying and, you know, having your you know, Bible and your phone ready <laughs> if you can to um, share, you know, what God is um, wants to say um, through you in that instance. Now, I know we're just about out of time, but I think the next question we could answer pretty quick. And actually what you shared, it was interesting because it kind of is a good segue. Um, if we want to just do that really quick, is that cool with you guys? Sure. And I just wanted to add to what you said, Rashawn, as well. Great answer. Yeah, fantastic answer. But yeah, it's, I just wanted to reinforce the idea that, you know, it is, God is the vine, we are the branch. And Amen. it's, it, it, it's him coming through us in that relationship with somebody else that is the best way to share the gospel. And if preaching it should be done really through our actions more than our words, at least our actions should precede our words yeah. on it. It's how we show up to other people that, um, you know, especially with young adults, that I, I was reached by, you know, when I was a young adult through a, a, a classmate of mine. And it was how she showed up in my life that was how I experienced Jesus and, and got to know the love of God. And so that, I think, is the, the key, the most essential component, so... Absolutely. All right. Let's get our other question up. It's coming. There you go. All right. So Jeff is asking, what Christian denominations publicly reject the false Augustinian doctrine of eternal hell? So Jeff, um, it appears to me that you <laughs> don't agree with the Augustinian uh, doctrine of eternal hell, and I have to say, I, I know I, I agree that um, the idea of hell being an eternal place of burning. I know there's a lot of debate on this, um, but I would agree with you that um, it's not a, a biblical, you know, doctrine because, like Jay had already gone over, you know, the wages of sin isn't eternal life in hell. The wages of sin is death, and the Bible says in Revelation 21 that those who are cast into the lake of fire, those who are lost. Uh, experience the second death. They die, they are no more. 
they are burned up. They are consumed. They consume away. There's so many verses like Jay just went over um, a, a little bit ago of how, you know, there shall be ash under the soles of your feet. They shall consume. They shall consume away. They will burn up. They will be destroyed. So, yeah, I, I must agree that um, the the Bible does not support, um, you know, this doctrine of eternal hell as far as e an, an eternal place of torment and burning. I, I would agree with that. Now, as far as what Christian denominations uphold or reject that doctrine of eternal hell, there's actually a few, um, as well as just some uh, ideologies out there. Um, the, the Church of Christian Science, so I'll just lift them to you really quick. So the Church of Christian Science actually doesn't believe in hell as far as it defines hell differently than what other people do. They uh, believe hell is more like a state of remorse. It's more like the result of sin. So like remorse and sin or sickness or death. So there are some, so they don't, you know, hold the same view of hell, but it's, it's different than maybe what you might hold. I don't know if this is your view or not. Um, the Jehovah's Witness Church also um, doesn't um, believe in the, the idea of hell as far as um, they, they believe it's hell being the Sheol, the word Sheol, which means grave or um, so it's just a common grave for people. And that, um, you know, as far as hell being, you know, what's mentioned in the new Testament, you Gehenna as eternal destruction or the second death um, it, for those who um, are destroyed at Armageddon. So basically they have no people who are just, they believe that um, in the battle of Armageddon, the wicked are destroyed and they have no opportunity to be resurrected. So um, there's also a, a group, which is the Christadelphian view, which is very similar, um, except that they believe that the resurrected will be judged for how they lived before their, their lives before the resurrection. Um, Latter-day Saints have kind of a different view on hell, but they do believe in a in eternal judgment. Um, but they aren't, from what I remember reading, basically, um, they, they, they just don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to know what that is. <laughs> Let's just not experience whatever that eternal judgment is, but they believe that because God is eternal, his judgment is eternal. So, um, they have a different view on hell than, you know, what is common as far as believing it is a state of eternal burning and torment. Uh, the unity church also rejects the idea of an eternal burning hell. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church also believes in um, the concept that, you know, an eternal suffering is incompatible with God's character of love, and he would not torture his children in such a way. Um, and the Seventh-day Adventist Church actually has a term that um, many people uh, use, which is called annihilationism, which is basically that the, the wicked are annihilated. They are burnt up, consumed, destroyed, um, as it says in the book of Revelation chapter 21, that they experience the second death. So um, they also hold that it's, you know, it's a not an eternal place. And um, there's many verses that, you know, support this basically, you know, because some people say, well, aren't there's something called, an, you know, the smoke of their torment shall ascend forever and ever. But, you know, just as it says in Jude chapter one, verse seven, um, basically that, you know, there's, um, in the similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave up themselves to sexual immorality and perversion. Uh, and they serve an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So basically, um, that's kind of uh, where they get their idea, from, which is that those 
the unquenchable fire of God basically is unquenchable in that it burns you up forever and you never have the opportunity to be resurrected. Um, and then there's also another theory out there, which I don't believe is um, biblical, but it is, a, it is an idea that rejects eternal hell, uh, which is um, Christian universalism, which is basically the idea that, um, yes, people, some people might suffer in hell for a while, but eventually all people will be returned to God and restored to God. And basically everybody will go to heaven one day. And I don't believe that is a biblical concept though. So there are many churches and denominations that have different views about hell and not every church, you know, believes in an eternal state of burning, which I think is good. Um, however, even within that, you have to really go back to what, do, what does the Bible say and, you know, prayerfully study it into um, what you believe that to be true as far as, you know, what happens when you die and what happens at the judgment. So uh, my prayer for you is you continue to study your Bible and um, figure out and decide for yourself, you know, what church do I want to attend? What church do I believe holds, you know, the biblical doctrine of what happens, you know, as far as the punishment of the wicked? Because I think that that has turned off so many people <laughs> to, you know, Christianity in that, you know, that God is to be feared, a God, you know, who, why would God, you know, for somebody who only lived, you know, 70 years of sin, why would they be punished for all ages of eternity? That doesn't seem like a fair and just God. And I would agree that, that I think that does go against, you know, what the Bible shows us in many, many instances, as far as, you know, God saying, you know, John three sixteen, 16, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish. So the, the result of not believing in God, of being lost is to perish, to be done away with, to, you know, be gone, um, but have everlasting life. So it's either perishing or everlasting life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So again, I, I would agree with that biblical model and, um, you know, prayerfully consider where you would have God to lead you as far as your church. Um, Jay, Wendy, anything else? Well, that was a beautiful explanation. Oh, praise God. That's good. You're always on a roll, but like, it's like super roll today. I'm like, I don't have anything to contribute. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Trust me. If I said anything good, it is not me. It is Jesus. So I praise God for that because I always pray, Lord, I, I don't want to say my own thoughts. I don't want to say my words. I just want to say what God has put in us. And I do believe that um, God does does grant us that. Now, I know we're and, over... And I should add, I guess just one clarification that there, there probably are other denominations that are like really related. Um, like I think the World Church of God, something like that, for example, might have similar viewpoints on hell as like other churches that came from um, like the Adventist Church or things like that. So, and um, Church of Christ? Oh, Church of Christ. Oh, you mentioned them? Okay, so good. We're covered. Okay. Sorry, I'm looking it up on Google. Like, what does the Church of God say? And unfortunately, there's so many different types of Church of God, so it's got to be precise, but... There are. Yeah. So we're, we're, I, we're have, not even I'll trying to cover all of them, <laughs> probably. No, that's true. I'll have to look it up another time. But I know we're over time, so we do want to wrap it up for the night. But we want to say thank you to everybody who joined us today. And um, we're so blessed to have every one of you be part of our Bible Ask family and community. And we just want to let you guys know that if you have a question that you would like formally um, uh, 
answered, excuse me, on our live show every week, uh, be sure to go to our website, bibleask.org forward slash live, and you can submit your questions there. And also um, be sure to check us out on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. And if you've been blessed, please like and share our content. We really appreciate that. It just helps us get the, the gospel out and share God's word and his truth with um, the world around us. And so we just want to give God all the glory. And we just pray that if you've been blessed, please be sure to um, share your blessing with others. And so with that, we'll go ahead and have a prayer and say goodnight tonight. Jeremy, do you want to pray for us? Sure. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for being with us this time. Thank you for the truth you've given us, for um, just the way your spirit works within us to bring us to love each other, to uh, have fellowship, to have purpose. And we pray that everybody here will find their calling a place in the church you've called them to and a community that they can serve in. And uh, just help us to bring as many souls as possible together into your kingdom that we may all enjoy eternity all together. And this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you guys so much. And again, everybody out there, thank you for joining us. We hope to see you again next week at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Good night, everyone, and God bless you.